You're listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Hello and welcome to the Transport for the North podcast. I'm Gemma and this week we're bringing you all the latest news from Transport for the North and what's happening with transport investment across the region. It's been a busy old week, we've got lots to bring you, so let's crack straight on with it. Uh, TFN Talks is our first item of the day. It was all about Northern Powerhouse Rail, why the North needs it, what it'll do to support our people and businesses right across the region and beyond. TFN Talks this time was hosted by David Collins, the Northern Correspondent at the Sunday Times. And the panellists were our very own Tim Wood, Northern Powerhouse Rail Director here at TFN. Anna-Jane Hunter, Director, North of England Rail at Network Rail. Elizabeth de Jong, who is Policy Director at the Freight Transport Association. Lucy Pryor, Business Engagement Director at Three Squared. And Steve Rotherham, Mayor of Liverpool City Region. So let's have a listen to some of those discussions right now. I'm David Collins. I'm the Northern Correspondent for the Sunday Times. And Northern Powerhouse Rail is something I've reported on for the last few years. Um, I'll start by saying that Northern Powerhouse Rail, um, what is it? Well, it's a programme to deliver a transformational rail network for the north of England. It will be the region's single biggest investment in transport since the Industrial Revolution. And it will feature a mix of new and significantly improved rail lines that will vastly improve regional, uh, national and international connectivity for passengers and freight. Uh, that, that, they're the words of uh, Transport for the North, they're not my words, but they are words that I believe in. Um, and we're going to be discussing today um, how Northern Powerhouse Rail will improve connectivity for passengers and businesses, why Northern Powerhouse Rail is a fundamental part of levelling up the North for our um, 17 million people who live here, and looking at the way that NPR and HS2 are potentially going to be integrated and what the government's plans are for that. First, we're going to go over to uh, the Mayor of the Liverpool City Region, Steve Robham, who I've discussed uh, NPR with several times. I know he feels very passionate about it. So over to you, Steve. Thanks, David. An appropriate place to come, given that we're also being handed a particular trophy tonight, um, but I, I won't go into too much detail on that. Um, look, it's an important and particularly uh, important, I suppose, juncture at the moment, because whilst COVID hasn't gone away and it's going to be with us for some time yet, um, we've got to look to the future, haven't we? And there are a number of issues that need some of our attention. Climate emergency is still hugely important to us. And then we've got the, the vexed issue of Brexit. Um, but we've also got to start at some stage planning for what the transport needs of the future will be. And uh, that includes Northern Powerhouse Rail to ensure um, that we do get the government to do what you've just introduced, David, and to give us a west-east connectivity of rail that the 17 million people in our area deserve. And also it connects up the great northern cities um, and, and that is still a promise that the government needs to deliver on. Um, it's a pledge, I think that was made way back in, um, it was in the, the Tory 
manifesto the beginning of no the end of last year um so it's in black and white it's on page 29 and it says uh, about connecting up um coast to coast across the north and that's still what we need and the prime minister recommitted to the project again in february this year confirming that uh, when hs2 will be built in full he said that npr would also be built too so um i know we haven't got an awful lot of time but just to explain the background to this which is that Politically, we live in the most centralised democracy in the OECD, and we still got the most geographically unbalanced economy in the whole of Europe. And that's from my perspective, because we have a Whitehall and Westminster model of governance that for far too long has looked south, and sometimes at the detriment of the north, and we can't allow this to happen again um, for our areas, because too often we have lower outcomes than in comparison with the south being in health you know education skills housing and of course transport too and so we need to address the disengagement with the center and we need an urgent rebalancing of the economy um, from south to north and so there's no better opportunity to me than than this uh, in, in my area alone NPR would increase our GVA by an estimated 15 billion pounds, improve our VISTA numbers by 6.3 million, and it would result in about 24,000 more jobs. So we're going to go over now to uh, Tim, Tim Wood, who is the Director uh, for uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail at Transport for the North. The last few months have been unprecedented, but what has become apparent is the investment in Northern Rail Network is an essential part of the government's levelling up agenda. Recent announcements are welcome news, but the North, through Transport for the North, has to play a central role in deciding these schemes. Transport for the North is made up of the North's political and business leaders. They understand local passenger needs and want the ability to take decisions and make decisions that respond to those local needs. Decades of underinvestment has resulted in substandard transport infrastructure throughout the north of England. Capacity and reliability issues across the network, coupled with poor connectivity and really slow journey times, has consigned the north to a straitjacket, and that has limited our economic growth. Northern Powerhouse Rail delivered in full is part of that solution to transform the north rail network and unlock the region's untapped economic potential. Through a mixture of new and upgraded railway lines, NPR will radically improve capacity and journey times across the North network to deliver a real modern and effective system. That enhanced connectivity coupled with an extra 35,000 seats every hour between key cities at peak times enables the North to operate as a single economy, leading to a multi-billion pound increase in the gross value added per year, creating thousands of better quality jobs in our cities and also driving that regeneration that's well needed in our towns. By better connecting the North strongly performing economic areas, we can rebalance the economy and bring tangible benefits to Northerners that will make a real difference to their lives. The increase in productivity up to 2% in better connected places will go some way to closing that North-South economic divide. Northern Powers Rail will be delivered in full and can play that really key role in the government's leveling up agenda, as well as contributing to the green economy and particularly the recovery 
post-COVID-19. At its core, NPR is an economic program designed to unlock future prosperity, but also deliver benefits to people's quality of life and the environment. Northern Paris Rail will take 64,000 car trips off the North Road network each day. As the government looks at building back greener and more encouraging and encouraging active travel, rail can play that pivotal role in the modal shift away from the car and towards a sustainable one. So only 1.2% of us in the north use the train. 98% of us every day use fossil fuel vehicles. This just cannot be right. Public transport has to lead the charge. And as I mentioned earlier, NPR is part of that solution. But it's important to say that other major rail programmes, such as HS2 Phase 2B and the Trans-Pennine route upgrade, are delivered in full too, if the Norse rail network is to be truly transformed. It's promising to see that the National Infrastructure Commission's interim report on the integrated rail plan will focus on real benefits. By firming up year in year spending on rail projects, the government's plan will help boost jobs and inject pace and confidence into a sustained economic recovery for the North. But this process shouldn't reopen the either or choice between major rail projects or other rail upgrades. We will absolutely work tirelessly to make the case of a transformational investment and our leaders expect to be part of that decision-making. So I think we're going to go next to um, Anna, Anna-Jane Hunter. Hi, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, really interesting topic. I, I won't take up quite so much time and introduction uh, as the previous two speakers. I'm keen to get into the discussion, but um, at Network Rail, it's uh, probably just important for me to say that whilst we're looking to the future and as a northerner and somebody who lives in the north, I'm really excited about um, what NPR has to offer. We do acknowledge we've got a bit of work to do in the meantime. So picking up on what you just said there, David, a lot of the reason behind people not using rail as much as we would all like them to do we don't always get it right um in particular in the last few years you know since may 18 it's not been the best of time for a lot of passengers particularly in the north so we're acutely aware of that there's a lot going on in the meantime it's not all just about jam tomorrow so we are doing a lot of work to upgrade the network and to deliver a better service for passengers right from now and um, all the way up to preparing for npr delivering npr and working with tfn to deliver its um, strategic vision for the long term so Really exciting time to be in the north and in rail. Uh, looking forward to some questions and getting into the discussion about it today. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you. And now we're going to go to um, Elizabeth uh, De Jong, who is uh, the Director of Policy at the Freight Transport Association. Yes, thanks for inviting me. So we represent the logistics industry across all modes of transport and including rail, which plays a really important part in the logistics industry. So uh, I'm here talking about rail freight, flying the flag for that and the Northern Powerhouse Rail and how they fit together. So why is rail freight important? Well, it delivers both those economic and environmental benefits that the North of England needs. Uh, the rail freight industry is vital to the economic success of Great Britain, 1.7 billion pounds of economic benefits uh, per year, but to bring that to life, that's £30 billion worth of goods to customers around and across Britain each year. So rail freight, important for the North, it's important for economic efficiency. And David, compared to the road network, the rail network is over twice as reliable 
um, with 4.4 seconds uh, per mile delay on average compared to 9.4 on the highway. Uh, so you might be interested in this in particular. But um, another reason why it's very important is one freight train uh, can remove up to 76 heavy good vehicles from the road, really reducing congestion, which again improves economic efficiency as well as delivering environmental benefits and safety benefits too. And we know through TFN's own work that there's a number of issues with rail freight in the north of England and as such these will hinder economic efficiency, economic growth and delivery of those environmental benefits. And we're hoping that Northern Powerhouse Rail can be a catalyst to address a number of those. So lack of capacity is the prime focus for rail freight, getting what's known as a freight path or a route on the rail network. 70% um, of rail freight operators' investments are directed towards capacity enhancements. It's really important for them. And uh, TFN's projections are that rail freight uh, by rail in the north is expected to grow by 40% uh, up to 2050. Uh, rail freight does also suffer from low average speeds. So uh, in conversations around uh, rail in the north, the uh, instance that's often given is Drax Power Station near Selby, and that imports biomass water pellets from a number of northern ports, Liverpool, Inningham and Hull. And the average time for a loaded train for a 100 mile journey has been over seven hours, so an average speed of just 16 miles an hour. And additionally, the network does not allow the longest train lengths, uh, which rail really needs to compete with road and deliver those benefits, particularly for intermodal containers, which our ports uh, really need to link them into our economy. And we know there's not enough width and heights on rail routes to allow our ISO containers on the rail network and uh, gauge clearance is needed if rails to play its part in moving freight by sea shipping routes in and out of the northern England. Um, and there's nothing uh, of sufficient clearance across the Pennine at all. So those issues with rail freight in the north of England are important because they mean that road congestion is higher than it should be and economic growth particularly around the growth of ports in the north of England is constrained. I have read uh, that Northern uh, Powerhouse Rail says that it's likely to release rail capacity onto the existing network uh, that could be used for freight uh, which will lead to economic benefits but we really need to see a commitment that that potential additional capacity for rail freight from the northern rail powerhouse is delivered particularly of the right length and paths and linking our ports from uh, the west such as liverpool to the east humber and tees and time it's so important for making the north attractive to international trade and investment so that those shipping lines make greater use of northern ports and we know that freight's been underestimated in government appraisal processes it's often just valued at the driver's time this is being looked at by dft at the moment and i'm hoping that holds the key to unlocking um, the delivery of more freight paths, which will boost the economy in the north of England. We're finally going to go to uh, Lucy Pryor. Uh, Lucy is the Business Engagement Director for Three Squared um, LTD, and I'm sure she's going to give us the business, uh, the voice of business on the hugely important issue of NPR. Uh, Lucy. 
Well, it is, I'm going to speak as a business, but also as a passenger. And this is something I always go back to. We are all passengers. So David, big ticking off for not traveling by rail, but if you don't feel comfortable for whatever reason, it's got to be addressed. So picking up on Steve's comments about climate energy and Brexit, as well as West East connectivity. For me, Northern Powerhouse Rail and interregional connectivity, it's crucial to supporting and surviving all of these things as well. So Elizabeth's perfect points on what modal shift means for clean air, not just on the decarb agenda, but air quality, that's inarguable. Um, and, and Elizabeth, you're not the only one pushing for modal shift here as well. We work firmly with Fox, with freight operating companies, as well as with passenger operating companies. And it is so important that transport in its widest guise is supported by Northern Powerhouse Rail. So east-west connectivity, David, you mentioned about um, by, um, the American trade deals. We're getting at some of our biomass that's going over to Drax in the east from North American plantations. It's vitally important, not just for domestic um, transit of people between our metro centres, it is vitally important for connecting our communities, but it is also vitally important for connecting our commodities and the use of those commodities as well. Um, there are so many points all of the speakers have raised and there's some really cool ones coming in on the chat. Um, so just to pick up on one in particular for me, Northern Powerhouse Rail as a business, it's vital for business, but it's vital for our enabled and connected communities. So everything from active travel to modal shift to last mile for me, that's what NPR represents. So a really interesting TFN Talks once again. I hope you're enjoying that webinar series. I'm going to be joined by my colleague Stephen now for a quick chat about some of those key points. Hi Stephen, how are you? Hi Gemma, I'm very well, thank you. Jolly good. So another excellent TFN Talks session. Props to um, yourselves in the, in the team for setting that up and getting another great panel of speakers for us. Um, some really interesting points of discussion there. I want to start with a bit about the climate emergency. Steve Rotherham was uh, referencing that about the need to, to tackle uh, climate change, looking at decarbonisation and also how that fits in with the transport needs of the future. And rail is obviously going to play a massive part in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think the, the general theme was, I mean, the, the, the session was titled, you know, the importance of Northern Paris Rail. And I don't think that was questioned at any point in the discussion. I think it more became about, you know, it was about why the specifics and what, what are the kind of fundamental things that underpin it. And yeah, like you say, the client emergency was one. You know, I think if we want to move people away from um, from the roads and onto public transport, then obviously we've got the short term issue of getting that confidence back. But in the long term, you know, the, the, the rail capacity just isn't there to accommodate uh, the amount of people that want to move onto the rail. And if we're going to do that, then, you know, we need uh, we need to have Northern Paris Rail and the new lines and, and the additional capacity that will bring you know that's not even factored in the journey times and the opportunities that will open up for people from a jobs perspective you know just in terms of getting the amount of people we want on the railway we need that we need that new investment yeah and that that modal shift came up several times throughout the whole discussion uh tim was talking about taking sixty-four thousand cars off the road network a day by getting people um onto the northern powerhouse rail network network um, and of course it's not just passengers it's freight as well isn't it and i think elizabeth de jong made a point about uh, one freight train being able to remove 76 hgvs off the road this is massive numbers isn't it 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's it's often the forgotten bit about the rail network and, and just the transport network in general is is freight. It's fundamentally important to getting the goods that we want to us on time. So I think particularly as we've seen during during the COVID nineteen situation, there's a lot more people ordering stuff online and there's a lot more deliveries. And for that to work, you know, you need a transport system that's going to be able to get goods um, anywhere around the north. You know, whether that's coming in from the ports or, or, or even the airports in the north as well. Uh, so yeah, it was massively important to have Elizabeth as part of the discussion. I think she made some really good points, like you said, that the fact that one one train can take up seven six HGVs off the road. Um, but again, at the moment, <clears throat> we don't really necessarily have the capacity to accommodate that and the passengers, like I said, and that's rolling back from decades of underinvestment, which I you know is something we kind of it's like our catchphrase, I think, for this podcast. Um, but I think you know we've seen all all of that uh, all of that has kind of come to a head recently, and uh, there's just essentially not really any space to move at the moment. Uh, I know we're going to come up and speak to hear from Richard George shortly, and you know, and that's one of the key points that he was making. You know, at the end of the day, there just isn't the capacity really, and there hasn't been for a few years to actually get out of the North Rail network what we want essentially so we, we we do need that investment um and and yeah making sure freight is part of that discussion is really important absolutely and you've referenced you know some really key points there around the economy around connectivity covid19 recovery funding devolution under investment leveling up all of these kind of things that as you say mm. we're you know continuing to bang the drum about there was plenty of discussion of that within TFN Talks. We're going to come back to those things a little bit later on. Um, in the interest of time, we'll uh, we'll leave those discussions on some of those key points when we come to talk about our board meeting uh, towards the end of the of the pod. Um, but just to note, guys, if you didn't get a chance to join in with TFN Talks live, they are all recorded. You need to head to our website, transportforthenorth.com. There's a section on there called TFN Talks under the calendars menu um, and you will be able to watch the whole thing back. You can see all of the previous ones as well on roads, on building back better um, and on strategic rail. Um, and our next one is all about smarter travel as well. So again, head over to that web page uh, and sign up for, for upcoming sessions as well. Next up, um, I sat down with Richard George this week. Um, he is the chair of OLR Holdings, uh, looking after Northern since it went to uh, public ownership at the uh, beginning of March this year. Seems like such a long time ago. Everything has completely changed since then. Um, I got together with Richard and we had a really, really good talk um, about all things rail basically we looked back on his career uh, from head of public transport at the uh, delivery authority for the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games we looked at the current situation with Covid and the challenges around that and we also looked to the future as well and what uh, his aspirations are for the rail network so it was a really chunky interview we're going to bring it to you in a couple of parts um, so here's the first part for you right now uh, I'm Richard George. Uh, I'm currently um, the non-executive chairman of uh, the DFT's Operator Last Resort Holding Company, or DOHL. Uh, so as chairman of DOHL, I chair the holding company, which has currently got uh, LNER as part of that group and Northern Trains as part of that group. And we also have a very small leasing company as part of that group as well. 
So that's the it's the government's holding company for companies taken back into the public sector. So we'll start by um, talking a bit about your background then. So how yep. you got to, to this place today. So you've obviously been involved in transport for, for a long time on various yep. projects. Was that something you always had aspirations to get involved in rail when you when you were studying and leaving uh, university behind? Um, no, not at all. Never crossed my mind I would end up on the railways. I came out of university and was looking for a decent management training scheme because I didn't know what words like finance and marketing and things meant. Uh, and I thought I ought to. So I'd looked for a decent training scheme and I ended up working for the National Freight Corporation, as it was then. And one of the companies that was in that was a company called Freightliners. Uh, and I joined Freightliners as part of that training scheme. And um, and then I became part of the railways by accident. Um, and what were the key challenges in that industry at that time? I won't allude to how many um, years ago that, that may have been. But um, <coughs> what, <laughs> what kind of thing were you working on at For the point? record, it was 43 years ago. Um, yeah. What were we doing at the time? Well, um, the railways was struggling at the time, um, and it was struggling for all sorts of reasons, structural reasons. It, it was um, it, it was not popular with the governments. It was costing an awful lot of money. It was not seen as it was not basically seen as a driver of growth. It was just seen as a spender of money, um, and consequently. I spent the most of my early part of my career um, closing things and making people redundant. Uh, that was the world we were living in at the time. So, so it was a very different world from the world we've been in for the last 30 years or so. Would you say there was a turning point then for transport and for rail investments in particular? Yeah, I think there was. Um, I think it was... In the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, um, where I think structurally British Railways Board at the time actually got its act together in terms of how the organisation was put together. The Railways had always, had always had some very, very competent managers. It just collectively, their achievement was awful. I mean, it just was going nowhere. And we're just costing the taxpayer a huge amount of money. The service was rubbish. And structurally, British Railways Board went through a number of changes. And we finally ended up in an organisation which actually began to start moving. And at the time, I, I, was a, I was the strategy director for Intercity, as it was at that time. Um, and it really felt like we were beginning to get somewhere. Uh, and we were beginning to turn the tanker round and we were beginning to attract people back to the railways and we got to a position where the way the accounts were done at the time which is always questionable intercity went from a thumping great loss into actually making profit and things were going so well we probably got privatized bang so that was the end of that process um but actually so a lot of ever since privatization um it's been on the up Railways have been on the up ever since, but actually that process started just before privatisation, in in my judgment. 
We'll jump forward a bit later on to sort of present day and, and mm. future investment and, and pick back up on that. But I just want to stick with some of your previous um, your previous roles in the industry. So you've worked on HS1, uh, obviously a big infrastructure project. What were some of the challenges you faced on that and some of the lessons learned that you'd say you've taken forward with you through through later roles? I worked uh, at that time for Eurostar. Um, and so Eurostar was the end user of HS1, if you like, as opposed to, I wasn't actually working for HS1. At the time, it was called CTRL, Channel Tunnel Rail Link. Um, and my job was actually to transfer Eurostar from Waterloo to St. Pancras. So if you like, I was the, the migration director for moving the operation from Waterloo to St Pancras and in doing so was setting the specification for St Pancras station and for Ebbsfleet station and working with all the contractors to get the job done in a way that worked for the operator as well as the builders. That was the thing I personally learned most from that exercise was the difference between the engineering perspective of getting the job done and getting it over and done with, and actually having something that works for, as far as the operator and the customer is concerned. And of course, they're very, very different things. Um, and uh, I learned a lot about that relationship between the contractors and actually the operator who's going to use it at the end of it. And the challenging interface you get as a project is being completed. And anybody who's built an extension to their house will know that the difference between what the builder says is ready and what you domestically believe is ready are two very different things. Well, it's exactly the same with a big railway project. Exactly the same. And I learned that in spades with that one because it was a huge project. St Pancras Station is a magnificent structure which made it very, very complicated in the way which was done. But actually, uh, it all worked perfectly. The other thing I learned at the time and I think we all learned from St Pancras, was Britain can do big projects and get them right. At the time, it, nobody believed it would work. Nobody believed it would be on time. Nobody believed it would be as hugely successful as it was because we had decided as a nation we couldn't do stuff like this. That's really interesting. Do you think that's something that the industry needs to remember in in present times as we're yes. looking at NPR HS2 to remind ourselves that we we can and we have done these things before? We can and we have done these things before. We 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 actually are much, much better at these things than we give ourselves credit for. Um, I think St Pancras was a turning point and HS1 was a turning point from the success of that. We went on to the Olympics and I went on to the Olympics as well. But it was it was at the time it was a huge boost of confidence to the railways and to transport and to the country in terms of major projects. We, we are very competent to do these things. If you look at the projects that we've had difficulties with, they're usually for the same reason. If you look at um, Crossrail as a classic example at the moment, which is a massive, technically brilliant project. The difficulties we've had with it are always the same. 
as the interfaces between track and train and signaling and trains become more complicated, it's getting those interfaces to work is always the most complicated bit. And the other thing I would argue about Crossrail is I think um, the financial and contractual structure was wrong in the first place. But that's a personal belief. Others would argue absolutely violently that it was the right way of doing it. I believe it was absolutely the wrong way of doing it. But there you go. That's a different issue. You uh, mentioned there um, your work with the Olympic and Paralympic Games then in 2012. You were director of transport. What what did that role entail and how how different or, or, or similar is it when you're planning transport for a single large event as opposed to, um, sort of, you know, more long term transport planning where it's, you know, a permanent, a permanent piece of work? Well, there's one obvious difference which is um with a project like the olympics you know five or six years in advance at what date and at what time it starts and so one of the three big variables of a project is removed you've only got three to play with one is time one is money and the other is quality well you've time you've taken out the game you know to the minute when it's going to start six years in advance the rest of them becomes money, and we didn't have any money. Um, <laughs> so we, we just had the easy bit to do, get it right, yeah. Um, it is, in many respects, it's the same as planning any other project. You, you need to be very clear what you're trying to do by when and how you're going to do it, like any other project. Um, but the content of it is a very different thing from running... Uh, a company or running a project for a company or an authority because at the end of it you finish there is no joy in finishing the olympics and having a million pound in the bank because you've 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 wasted that million pound you need to spend every penny on getting it done and go bust on the final ceremony because on the closing date that's it there is nothing else to do. You've finished. There is some wrapping up to do, but actually, so I went. I went as as a transport director. At the beginning of 2011, I had 25 staff. But at the beginning of 2012, I had 400 staff. For the games itself, if you included all of the volunteer drivers and things, I had. Um, I had about 15,000 staff. Um, by a day after the closing ceremony of the Paralympics, I was down to 30 staff again. Because every penny spent after that was wasted money. Mm -hmm. It was We were just paying to sweep up after that. Um, and so it's a very different dynamic from a normal company. The other thing that's very different is the transport. Everybody looks at the huge numbers of visitors and the spectators going to and from the games and people think of that's the transport. That is that is the transport that occupied about a tenth of my time. Because actually most of my time as a director of transport was worrying about the bus systems and the car systems for getting the athletes and the broadcasters to the games, to their events, the officials their accommodation, all all the stuff around that, because no athletes, 
no event. No cameras, and it didn't happen. If the cameras broadcasters aren't there, it might as well have never happened. So actually, you learn quite quickly that the broadcasters and the and the athletes are the things that matter. But the amount of noise you get from VIPs is unbelievable. Unbelievable. So so actually, you find that the world becomes a very closed world of the internal transport, which is what you occupy your time with as the director of transport, rather than the real world transport, which is what everybody else is worried about. And how do you how do you create a legacy out of something like that then? How do you learn from that and apply it to normal transport planning in you know everyday life? Um, I think it's very difficult to get a transport legacy. Um, I think there are all sorts of sporting legacies that people worked on quite hard throughout the games. Um, I think if there was a legacy from uh, the London Games, there were there were two or three things. One is there were bits of infrastructure that were put in place for the games which remain there, which is valuable. Infrastructure. So the, 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 the redoing of places like Stratford Station in the East End and um, various bits of infrastructure that were put in place in order to facilitate the games which which helped but the biggest legacy i think was actually london transport tfl came out of it with a hugely enhanced reputation um and we worked hard on making sure that the whole because it was a public transport games it wasn't a private it was a public transport games um, and much to the chagrin of a number of the Olympics people um, who really didn't get it at all and just wanted to know where their BMW was. Um, he, he, the, the legacy of the Games was a hugely enhanced reputation for TFL. Um, and it gave them a lot more self-confidence to do a lot of things on the back of it. And it became actually, for a brief window of time, quite a sexy thing to do being in transport. It only lasted about a fortnight, but it, you know, for a while, it was really quite good. Um, so, so the biggest legacy, I think, was confidence, and the confidence again that you know what Britain can do big events, Britain can do big infrastructure projects, projects, Britain can do big stuff, and really do it rather well when it decides it wants to, and it won. The the games was unquestionably, technically, the best games that have ever been put on, without any shadow doubt. There's only been one since, so I can say that. <laughs> and and has do you think that that learning, that insight, that experience, has that applied to other sort of mass transport sports events? I'm thinking of things like I was in um, Yorkshire when the Tour de France Grand Depart yeah. came to town a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, have other sporting events on a a, a, not quite as large as that, but a large scale, do you think? Have they learned from that? Have they found anything new? Uh, I think what they've probably found is confidence. And, and they've also learned that there are all, what you, you do have to do is to get everybody on side. And, and just as with some of the jobs I do now, transport director for the games was as much about stakeholder management as it was about logistics. Because actually getting all the stakeholders on site, I mean, you can't you can't do a Tour de France around Yorkshire unless 
Yorkshire County Council thinks it's a good idea. Yeah, you, you, you have to get everybody involved and you have to get people in support. Otherwise, you've got a problem on your hands. Um, and and I think I think I think we're much better at that than uh, in understanding that we used to think this was just about logistics and and engineering. It's not. It's it's about bringing everybody with you in communities and stakeholders and everything as well. Um, and I think I think I think there's also because of the games there there are a core of people now in this country who got experience from the games of understanding how to put on games i mean i've got colleagues and friends who who are scattered all around the world running events um and a number of them really learned what they were doing from london in the london games we had people who'd done it in sydney we had people who'd done it in uh, vancouver and we had you know but we didn't have any people who'd done it in beijing because we didn't learn anything from beijing basically different different context so yeah i think i think it is a very valuable for lots of things the context is so different then context is very different let's move on then Aaron. context yep. brings us nicely to um the present day mm -hmm. so um leading question we know what the answer is going to be here i think uh biggest challenges we face on the transport network in, uh, <laughs> today i think it begins with a c I think it begins with a C, yeah, um, and I think I think we need to just stop and think for a minute where we were in February compared with where we are now. And where we were in February, March, it was very clear to me what the issues were for Northern, and um, and also very clear that some of them were systemic. And some of them have a very, very long genesis. Um, <clears throat> some of the problems for Northern are were, were the same problems that were prevalent before anything was ever privatised. Um, and that says a lot about um, the whole structure of the economy of the UK and the whole structure of the way which organisations are actually largely london centric um so i think structurally there were lots of things we knew we were going to have to do with northern um they sort of boiled down to yeah okay get the trains to run on time get the performance right yeah absolutely if there's one thing you learn as a railway manager pretty early on is that if performance is going well everything's going well you can actually start thinking it's you know as opposed to just spending all day every day firefighting um so getting the performance right is is absolutely essential because nothing else works until you do your marketing doesn't work your industrial relations don't work your people get confused it's it's nothing works you know um so so that was essential um we had plans uh, about how we were going to do that. We knew how we were going to do that. We also knew that some of those things were likely to cause some rows. Um, that was not a surprise to me, having been through a number of meetings in a, uh, in a consultancy role in addition to what I do now. Uh, so I was well aware of some of the issues. 
Um, and of course, then COVID came along. And suddenly the world looks very different. Um, but inherently, the same issues are still there underneath. We still have the same problem um, that um, we were trying to get uh, a quart out of a pint bottle or a quart into a pint bottle in the case of the Caswell Corridor um, and uh, trying to get too much out of a system that wasn't really designed to provide that much for all sorts of very, very good reasons. And the very, very good reasons being we needed to get more out of the system because we need to provide more transport, because we need to provide more capacity, we needed to provide more trains. And so people set about doing it, but nobody put the foot in the ball and said, actually, we haven't got enough tracking signals to do this. Um, uh, and the, you can pick the bones out how we got there for a long time. The issue was how do we get back again? Now, in a funny sort of way, COVID has solved some short-term problems very quickly because, as you will have noticed, the trains are running terribly punctually at the moment. Um, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that, you know, um, how easy it can be. Yeah, but actually this has got a lot to do with the pressure being taken off the system. You take the pressure off the system and, oh, look, it can work. Um, so on the one hand, miraculously, we've solved the punctuality problem. But of course, we've now got ourselves a much bigger and very different problem, which is, yeah, but um, how do we get people back using the system again? Because that's what we want them to do. Because all the time they're not using it, the finances are shot to bits. And um, if the finances are shot to bits, so is everything else. I'm, I'm, I'll ask the question. I don't suppose there's an answer, but what is the answer to that? Then how do we go from, you know, a system that that works but nobody wants to, or is actually being discouraged from using it? How do we marry that with passenger confidence, maintaining reliability as more people start to use services? Then again, no easy answer, I guess. No easy answer, but it, it, we have to be very conscious about what decisions we take at each stage in a perfect world in a perfect world what would happen now is customers will start regaining their confidence passengers will want to start using the railways again it will coincide with vaccines coming along social distancing disappearing and it's being able to gently push the service back up at a rate at which we can keep in sync the performance and the capabilities of the system. And it will all miraculously or gently go on the same upward gentle trajectory at the same time. Mm. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not going to be like that uh, because we don't know when we get a vaccine, we don't know how long social distancing is going to last. We don't know how quickly people will want to come back. And in a very practical sense, we cannot expect Treasury um, to be patient for a very, very long time on how much money the railways is costing. Because at the moment, we're spending an awful lot of money carting around an awful lot of fresh air. 
and um, my early experiences of the railway tell me Treasury doesn't live with that for very long. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why I'm laughing because it could be horrible, uh, but but that's that's where we are. That's where we are. But there have been um, some positives. You mentioned the um, the performance statistics. Yes. You know, reliability. Yeah. Um, a new timetable was introduced, and we all remember the um, the challenges of timetable a couple of years ago. That um, I think it's fair to fair to say caused chaos across the network. Yeah. So in this new timetables um, have been brought in very smoothly and um, we've seen some really good examples of operators bodies like transport for the north um, and you know kind of private sector and other sort of passenger organizations really working well together particularly in the yeah, early actually. stages of covid yep. to say these are yep. the services we need because people need to get to new nightingale yep. hospitals and so on there have been uh positives out of this absolutely and um, still many challenges as you referenced particularly around uh passenger confidence and keeping that reliability yeah. how do you see the next few months panning out the, th the thing we have to maintain is is the mutual respect and confidence you're right the organizations working together has been uh absolute benefit it's 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 allowed us actually to reinstill a bit of confidence in the management of Northern because their confidence had been shot to bits where they where they were. It's not, not a question of whose fault it was. It, it just had been because of the situation they were in. I, I think I think the big lesson from all this is how much easier things are to actually manage coherently and manage everybody's expectations when a bit of pressure is taken off the system. And taking that pressure off the system allows everything to work properly and allows everybody to plan. I won't say plan properly because actually the planning teams of the railway have been working overtime for the last four or five months as they've been changing the timetables all the time in a way the systems are not really designed to do. Uh, which you know doesn't help, but but it just goes to show how critical it is in terms of the amount of pressure on the system. Um, and what we haven't had is huge engineering works interrupting it as well, which also, <laughs> you know we've got all that to come. Don't worry. Um, so so I think I think I think. There are positives, you're right. We have to main, we have to focus on maintaining those positives, and therefore, there's a often used expression now about build back better. Yeah, we need to build back carefully, very carefully, because we could lose we could lose impetus very easily if we build back incorrectly, um, and that's that's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. Um, my, you know. The, who knows what capacity we need two years, three years from now? One would like to think in two or three years from now, we'll be back to where we were in January this year. Hope you enjoyed that discussion with uh, Richard George there. As I said, we had a very lengthy interview this week. So we'll be bringing you the next part of that 
in our podcast next week. So do make sure you're subscribing to the pod on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and keeping an eye out on the page on our website for the recordings. And also uh, we'll be sharing links on social media as well. Final item for today then, it was our TFN board meeting this week. Always a really interesting meeting where Northern political and business leaders get together uh, to discuss the hot topics of the day. So uh, on the agenda this week was economic recovery plan, TransPennine route upgrade, Rail North committee update, the Northern Transport Charter and our work on our investment programme sequencing. So some really chunky, really important topics there. Again, board meetings are streamed live. All of the public items you will be able to watch as they happen online. Head to transportforthenorth.com. There's the board meetings page. You'll find all the dates, all the agendas, uh, all the papers on there and the links to watch live. You'll also find the recordings if you want to go back and watch the whole thing. Stephen, what was that? What was your highlight from from board this time around? Um, so I think well, obviously that the, there was a lot of uh, meaty discussion about kind of like governance stuff that went on early on, which I won't go into. But obviously that's uh, you know that that's fundamentally important to to how we run as an organisation, make sure things keep ticking over. Um, I think one of the things that became clear was we've got the integrated rail plan coming up uh, towards the end of the year. Um, and I think there was massive pressure on the, the upcoming boards uh, to make some of the key decisions to feed into that uh, review to make sure that the North's voice is heard. I think uh, there was a quick summary of the partnership board, which is kind of essentially the, the, the private version of, of, the, of the, the main board that kind of advises itself. In that respect, I think there was a quick summary of, um, of obviously there was the, the announcement of the Northern Transport Acceleration Council, and the fact that you know TFN needs to move forward has done an excellent job of actually coordinating that kind of one voice on behalf of the the North and coming up to agreements and things like that. So I think they wanted to push that forward into to the to the September and November boards and make sure that we get. Uh, you know that we get our submission in on and our views on Northern Paris Rail and the the the, the integrated rail plan through. So I think um, I think if they were to say what was the the big thing coming out of the discussion, I would have said that was the main thing about how much work's going to be done over the next few months. Uh, but we also there was an update on the TransPennine we upgrade, so we heard from the Department of Transport on that. Obviously, the papers for our meeting came out before the announcement last week, but I think that was a that was a key piece of advice that Transport for the North has provided. I think I think looking back, I think it may have actually been our first formal statutory advice as as a subnational transport body was about the TransPennine route upgrade, saying you know we want that commitment to the full electrification along the whole uh, the, the whole network so because that's the only thing that essentially delivers the outcomes that, that we want to see so i think that was that was a particularly welcome uh welcome announcement to something that like say is a board that they've pushed incredibly hard on so i think um and then i think you know going further forward we obviously saw uh kind of like a link into the economic recovery plan proposals and the investment program update so again this is where we're kind of pushing forward the schemes that we want to see um, and making sure that uh, our partners are bought into it. You know, we're, we're saying the, the, the schemes that we want, they'd already agree with them. We've worked very closely with our partners to come up with these schemes. And then they were essentially, you know, for, for rubber stamps at this meeting. So that's, again, showing an example where we've worked together as the North and we provided clear advice to government about what we will do. So I think we, we're going to formally submit our economic recovery plan proposals, you know, in the next few days. Um, so so I think that's, again, it's it's, 
it was a board where you know there was a lot of work to come but there's also a lot of work that we've done that was getting finalized i think it just shows the the unity that you can get around that board and when they're not, they're not coming together to actually prioritize in the right way uh, so I said, if you said, that was my some main takeaway from the meeting if you if you were to ask me uh, you mentioned economic recovery plan, obviously the Northern uh, Transport Charter as well, which is in development, the um, sequencing of our investment programme. All of these things are really chunky pieces of work that have so much data, evidence, analysis, experience, insight built into them. Um, and these things in particular will um start to uh, take shape, start to come out there, put into action over the coming weeks and months, all mm. building up to um, the fiscal uh, event in the autumn, October-ish, I think we're, we're thinking, comprehensive spending review. Um, and this is all kind of uh, fodder for, for you know, TFN and, and the North to say this is what we need out of um, funding announcements, devolution arrangements, and um, to really, you know, make happen that uh, that level up agenda. So yeah, another really interesting board meeting. Like I say, if you weren't able to to watch live, um, but you want to have a read of the papers, they are all online on our website. That's been a really quick run through, guys, of uh, some really interesting items uh, from Transport for the North over the past week or so. TFN Talks, our interview with Richard George and the latest board meeting. Thanks again, uh, Stephen, for joining me. Really good to, to have your company. Uh, we will be back with the next pod uh, next week. We'll have the second part of that Richard George interview and much more on everything that, that's going on here around the North. In the meantime, stay tuned by following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Search Transport for the North and you should find us. Get on our website if you need to find out more about any of our programmes, upcoming board meetings, upcoming event talk sessions. And if you scroll down to the bottom of that page as well, put your email address in there and we will keep you updated every week with a few of the highlights through our All Points North email newsletter. That's it for now. Thanks ever so much and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe on Spotify and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook for all our latest updates. And join us on our website where you can find all the latest news and sign up to our All Points North newsletter.